our Bibles out to Genesis chapter 1. <coughs> if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home with you if you don't have a Bible of your own and you'd like to consider more of what God has to say to this world. For the note takers, I have five points for you this morning. I'm pretty proud they all begin with the letter C. I try to do alliteration, I'm not very good at it. But I nailed it this week. All glory be to... No, no. <laughs> Controversy, chaos, creation, creator, conclusion. Controversy, chaos, creation, creator, conclusion. If you didn't get all those, we'll get them as we go. Point number one, controversy. Point number one is going to be the longest point in this morning's sermon, so if we're 20 minutes in and we haven't finished point number one, don't panic. We're kind of front-loading the questions of controversy for a reason. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time for war and a time for peace. And because of our sinfulness and our stupidity, to be quite frank, we Christians often confuse the times. That is, we find ourselves fighting when we should be at peace, and we find ourselves at peace when we should be at war. You take the Corinthian church, for example. The Corinthian church was at peace with the proliferation of a gospel in their midst that denied the doctrine of the resurrection. They should not have been at peace with that. They should have contended for the gospel. So, when Paul hears that this resurrectionless gospel has gained some kind of traction in the church, he writes to the Corinthians and he says, this is not the gospel. The resurrection is an issue of first importance. If you lose the resurrection, you lose everything. Likewise, in the church at Galatia, there was a doctrinal error about the nature of justification, how we can be made right with God, that was so significant that Paul began his letter like this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul says this issue in the church at Galatia is so important that you should not have peace amongst yourselves. You should be fighting tooth and nail against this. And yet in Scripture, not all questions of truth and doctrine are equally weighted. They are not all of equal importance. So writing to the church in Rome, Paul addresses doctrinal questions concerning dietary laws and the consumption of wine and the observance of certain holy days. And this is what he says to the, to the Christians in Rome. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before your own master that he must stand or fall. In other words, you guys are fighting about this stuff when you shouldn't be. Some families are going to celebrate Christmas. Other families think the Christmas tree is from the pagans and we shouldn't. But at the end of the day, says Paul in verse 1 of chapter 14, do not quarrel over opinions. That's a direct quote from the Apostle Paul. What I take that to mean is that from a human perspective, some of our quarreling over what we consider to be doctrinal matters really comes down to our opinion. 
Now, theologians uh, Albert Moeller and Gavin Ortland, they've given us a helpful term for what the Bible is doing here, how it, it weights different truths differently. It's called theological triage. And here's how the idea works. First-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel. So you lose these doctrines, you lose the gospel. You don't believe these doctrines, you're not a Christian. You deny these doctrines, you you are a heretic. The second-ranked doctrines, these are matters that are urgent to the gospel. These are doctrines that protect the gospel. These are doctrines that always end up bumping up against the gospel. And while you can be wrong about these doctrines, if you are wrong, eventually that might lead you down the slippery slope of losing the gospel itself. Third-ranked doctrines are doctrines that are still important, but they're not important enough to justify separation from one another. And then fourth-ranked doctrines are matters indifferent. So let's, let's take this paradigm and let's do some plugging in. The Bible says that first-ranked doctrines are doctrines like the doctrine of the resurrection and justification by faith alone. If you lose these, you lose Christianity. Second-ranked doctrines would be like infant baptism versus believer's baptism. You can choose to baptize your baby, and you can be you know, right or wrong about that and still be a Christian, but it is very much going to affect the gospel, and especially in the life of the church. Third-ranked doctrines would be like questions of the millennium. Some of us are post-millennialists. Some of us are amillennialists. Some of us are pan-millennialists, which means we think it's all just going to pan out in the end as long as we're following Jesus. And then finally, you know, whether you guys want to put up a Christmas tree in your own home on December 25th, that would be a fourth-ranked doctrine. Seems pretty simple. Yes? Not so fast. If you were to survey 100 American evangelicals about the doctrine of creation, you would find a very, very wide array of opinions about the importance of this doctrine. And rightly so, for you see... Some creation questions are issues of first rank, like was there a literal Adam and Eve through whom sin passed into the world? If you deny that, you lose the gospel. Some creation questions are second rank doctrinal issues. An example of this would be like theistic evolution. Can you believe in theistic evolution? We're going to talk about that in a minute. That is really important, but you can be wrong about that and still be a Christian. Some questions of creation are third and fourth order issues, like do you believe in a literal 24-hour day of creation or a day-age theory? Do you believe in a young earth or an old earth? Now, our church has been through a lot together. If you're a visitor, excuse us for a second while we just kind of have family time. We've been through a lot together. We've weathered some pretty heavy storms since Grant Miller began the process of revitalizing this church seven years ago. We've dealt with questions of female elders, church membership and church discipline, Calvinism and Arminianism, and even more recently, we made it through two years of COVID chaos. We've made it through two horrendous election cycles without the church utterly destroying itself. And we've even, I think, come out of the evangelical social justice civil wars remarkably unscathed. Now, why am I telling you all this? What does this have to do with Genesis 1? Well, allow me to answer that question by saying something else. In the book of Titus, Paul approvingly quotes a poet. 
And this poet says, all Cretans are liars. Paul says, that's a generalization, but it's basically true. Now, it is a generalization to say that American evangelicals love to argue about the doctrine of creation. But it is basically true. American evangelicals love to argue about these things. Now, here's where it comes back to us as a church. Some of those American evangelicals who love to argue about creation may be present among us. It could be you. You could be the one. And there are many things in the church that we should absolutely fight about and go to war over. But some of these questions are just not important enough for us to break down the unity of the church. Questions like whether or not we have a literal 24-hour day or how old the earth is. And while I'm talking about the question of how old the earth is, let me just go ahead and tell you my position. I've gone back and forth over the years. Is the earth old? Is the earth young? At one point, I thought the earth must be young because, for example, the the Hebrew word yom, which is translated as day in Genesis 1, is only ever really translated, uh, uh, it only ever really means a literal 24-hour day when it's used elsewhere in the Pentateuch. But then I saw that the word yom, day, is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, right after Genesis 1, to refer to something that is not a literal 24-hour day. So just look with me there at Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see what I saw. Summing up the creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we read, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth. And the heavens. Well, the word day here is not signifying a literal 24 hours, but rather it's signifying all six days of creation. So that kind of posed a problem for me. Then I found myself inclined towards believing in an old earth. I, uh, at the end of the day, eh, eh, you know, I almost passed over it. It was in my notes, but I just had to go for it. At the end of the day, I did find a number of exegetical issues, that is, trying to interpret Genesis 1 according to itself. I found a number of exegetical issues with believing in a literal 24-hour day, and then I thought, well, the science also seems to be leading us to believe that the earth is very, very old. But then the deeper I dug into some of the scientific questions, not that I'm a scientist, but as deep as a layperson can go, I found that many non-Christian scientists doubted the trillion-year earth hypothesis, which reminded me that the scientific consensus of today may very well end up being the shame of science tomorrow. And so like many things, I assumed that the answer to my question, what does the Bible say about the age of the earth, would not come from the scientists necessarily or Hebrew word studies, but from a careful exegesis of the text itself, careful study of the text. And when I studied the, careful, the, the text carefully, it led me to my current position, which is tremendously underwhelming. Here it is. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Here's the exegetical reason for my uncertainty. In Genesis 1, Moses is not trying to tell the people of Israel the age of the earth. That is not his intention. Rather, he is trying to do two things. Number one, Moses is trying to explain and empower. 
Now, God inspired Moses to write this account of creation as he was leading Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. His people, think about this, were leaving a land of darkness and chaos. And they were traveling through a land that was without form and void, the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit was hovering over them in the form of a cloud and pillar by day and by night and leading them into the promised land, a light a land of light and life and rest. Well, doesn't this sound strangely just like the creation story? Let's just look at that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now turn with me and let's look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So so why did God inspire Moses to write Genesis 1 for the people of Israel? Remember, whenever we're doing any kind of careful Bible study, we always have to ask, what was the author's intent? So what did Moses intend to communicate to the Israelites. Was he intending to communicate to them the age of the earth? Perhaps, but it seems to me it's more likely that he's trying to communicate something more pastoral. It seems to me like he's trying to say the same God who fashioned the universe from nothing has fashioned you, Israel, to be his people and to lead you into his rest. Listen to what Moses says to Israel before they go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 32. Right before they go into the promised land, Moses says this, Is God not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? He's taking the language that was used of Adam and of the whole earth and applying it to his people, Israel. Now, I think the second thing that Moses is trying to do here is he's he's offering a polemic. A polemic is is an argument or an attack on an idea or a concept. So in Genesis 1, Moses is not only speaking to God's chosen people about who they are, but he's also trying to tell them who he is. And in order to do that, he has to differentiate himself from the other foreign gods that they are constantly surrounded by. God is trying to tell them, as he tells the creation story, a story about himself I'm not like these other gods. I'm not like the gods of the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Canaanites. I am Yahweh. And you can see how unique I am in my creation deed. So let me just give you some examples. Unlike all the gods of the ancient world, Yahweh does not need food from humans. If you know anything about ancient religion, you know that one of the main things that you had to do for these deities was give them food. Well, here in Genesis 1, God says, I don't need food from you. I'm the one who created everything for you to have for food. You can see that when you look at verse 29. Look there with me. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Next, unlike many of the deities of old, God doesn't need to procreate in order to create. One of the signs of 
all ancient religion was that these deities were getting it on, okay? Now, the one true God says he doesn't need to procreate in order to create. Rather, he creates everything by the mere power of his word. If you're the kind of person who likes to mark up your Bible, you can just go to verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 9 and verse 11, 20, 24, 26, 28, and 29. Did you get all those? And you can just circle where it says, and God said, and it was. Thirdly, the God of the Bible doesn't have to battle it out with other gods in order to bring about the changes of the seasons. Rather, he is the one who puts the seasons in their place. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. If you were an ancient Israelite, you would have heard the story of one God killing another God every time that fall and winter turned into spring and summer. And God comes along and says, that's ridiculous. I created the seasons. Gods didn't have to kill each other in order to bring this to pass. Now look at verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Remember, Israel is coming out of the land of Egypt, and in the land of Egypt, they worshipped the god of the sun and uh, the god of the moon, right? One was Thoth, and the other one was Ra. But in verse 16 of chapter 1, God tells the people who just left the land of Egypt, I created the sun and the moon. Don't worship them. I created them. I hung them in the heavens. They are part of creation. They are not deities in and of themselves, which leads us to remember, I don't know if you remember when we talked about this in John's gospel, that all of the ten plagues that God does in Egypt when he's rescuing the people, each one of those plagues is meant to be a polemic against a false idol in Egypt. Well, the same thing is happening here in Genesis 1. So many details. I only gave you four, but there are many more. So many details in this chapter would have been heard by the original audience as a polemic against the false gods of the ancient world that were surrounding the people of Israel. And Genesis 1 is still doing that. Even today, Genesis 1 continues to serve as a polemic against bad religion. Just think about, think about it like this. One author says, Genesis 1 is a rejection of atheism because there is a God. It is a rejection of polytheism because there is only one God. It is a rejection of pantheism because the creation itself is not God. It is a rejection of humanism because man is not God. It is a rejection of macroevolution because the world and its creatures have come into being by intelligent design of God. Genesis 1 rejects the religion of materialism. That is, that the physical world, what we can see, is all that there really is. Genesis 1 also rejects dualism which says that the spiritual stuff is good and everything else in creation is bad. That's what the Gnostics believe. No, Genesis 1, as God creates everything on the earth, he says it's good. So, why do I plead agnosticism, at least for the time being, on the question of the age of the earth from Genesis 1? Uh, Just because I don't think Genesis 1 intends to tell us how old the earth is. But I could be wrong. 
And if I am, I'm sure I'm going to get emails with links to really good articles this week. And I'm sure I'll have books that are dropped off in my office. Pastor, you should really read these. And I promise if I have time, I will get around to reading it. But I want you to know that I have thought deeply about these things. And when I say that I'm pleading agnosticism, that is, I don't know, and I'll stop there, that I don't know, I want you to know that it's not an agnosticism of laziness. It's an agnosticism that has come as the result of much deep and prayerful study. Now, before moving on from point one, we also have to address maybe the most significant, at least in our context, point of contention. That is, the question of evolution. Now, this is a little tricky because different words mean different things to different people. For some people, when you say the word evolution, they just think it means that animals and plants and humans change over time, to which we, the scientifically erudite people that we are, would say, duh, right? There's nothing particularly Uh, controversial about that, wolves and dogs and and then eventually pugs and chihuahuas. We get it. But if we're talking about Darwinian macroevolution, you know, this idea that there was nothing and then it became something and then it became a tadpole, then it became an ape and then it became you, so on and so forth, well, that's a different story. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Darwinian macroevolution is not a mere scientific theory, friends. It is, a, it is chock full of philosophical and religious presuppositions. It is, in many ways, grounded in a deeper underlying religious belief about the world and how it works. Evolutionary theory functions as the holy scriptures for the religion of secular humanism. So, I want to say it as clearly as I can. Make no mistake about it. To believe in abiogenesis and Darwin's tree of life and everything else that evolutionary theory entails is to believe the antithesis of the story of creation. To believe in a Darwinian macroevolution is to deny the central teachings of Scripture and many of the core tenets of the gospel. And friends, I, I can't move on from this without noting the great irony here. I know that many of us aren't scientists and we're not paying attention to a lot of these questions and concerns that are happening in the scientific world, but the the great irony is that as so many Christians are in many ways compromising with the world in order to try to reconcile Darwinian theory with the gospel and with the faith, the scientists themselves, many of whom are not Christians or not even theists in general, have begun to cast serious doubt on the question of Darwinian and neo-Darwinian theory. So right when Christians are at their loudest screaming, we have to get on board with the science so that the world will respect us. Well, the scientists themselves, the evolutionary biologists, are saying that this theory may not be all it's cracked up to be. Now, let me throttle back a little. There are variations on the idea of evolution that one can believe and still be a Christian, and not lose the gospel. So some Christians, for example, believe in theistic evolution, which says that God has guided the process of speciation through evolutionary forces. I don't want to turn this uh, sermon into a lecture about that, but I do want to say three things. 
I want to tell you three reasons why you shouldn't believe in this. I'm your pastor. You may disagree with me, but while we're here and talking about it, I got to tell you what I think you should know. I got to tell you what I think the Bible says. But before I do that, I want to tell you that the reason why a person can believe in theistic evolution and still be a Christian is because we believe in justification by faith alone. We do not believe in justification by having all of our doctrinal ducks in line, right? You can be a Christian and believe all kinds of wacky things. You can believe in transubstantiation and Arminianism and paedobaptism and a whole bunch of other isms that I don't think are right and I don't think are scriptural, but you can still be saved because you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. You can have an errant view on how this aspect of science and creation fit together and still be saved. Having said that, I do think that this is a second-rank issue. That is, it's very important, and I want to tell you three things about it uh, to persuade you away from it. Number one, the concept itself is illogical. Theistic evolution, it posits that God is guiding the process of evolution. But evolution is the theory of the unguided process of life. So it is contradictory in nature to say that God is guiding that which is unguided. The second thing I want you to say, I, I want to say is that uh, I could say a lot more, but I'm not going to. So please check your church email this week. The Sixth Avenue Standard, I worked so hard on it, you know. I'm sitting in my office. I got my 1930s newspaper editor hat on. And I'm just typing away, and I'm, I'm trying to give you good resources. And, and the, the open rate on that, which we can see, by the way, is abysmal. But if there's a week and you're like, oh, Sean, I want to think more about this stuff, then check your email this week. And then the third thing I want to say is I want to show you something from Scripture. There's a lot of places we could go, but I want to show you one very clear place in Scripture that I think uh, rebuts the, the idea of theistic evolution. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, please. Guys, I, I told you that the first point was going to be the longest one. We were going to have to deal with controversial questions, and I promise we're about to dive deeper into the text once we're done with this. Go to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or what you will wear, nor about your body. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, the picture of God that Jesus communicates in Matthew chapter 6 is not the blind watchmaker of the deists. He is not the God of evolutionary theory, any iteration of evolutionary theory. He does not wind up the creation and then step back apart from creation and let it run according to time and chance acting on matter. The God of natural selection does not square in any way with the God of Matthew chapter 6. No, friends, the very good world that God has created was not and is not red in tooth and claw. God is active in his care for and his provision for his creation, okay? Our provision does not come to us based on how well we have adapted various survival traits to our environment. What we see in Matthew 6 is that whether we are speaking of plant life, the lilies and the grass of the field, or animal life, the birds of the air, or human life, you and me, us of so little faith, we see that God is intimately involved with his creation in a way that is diametrically opposed to theistic evolution. So in summary, it's not heresy, but you really shouldn't believe it. That's all we have for point number one, questions of controversy. Now we're going to go a little deeper into the text itself. Point number two, chaos. Look at verse one again. Go back to Genesis 1. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think what's happening here is that verse 1 is giving us a, a grand vision of creation. It's a sort of summary verse right at the beginning of the story. And then the rest of the chapter, what we now know of as a chapter, is the unpacking of what this glorious creation was like. But before we get into that, before we get into the glory of the six days of creation, we must first encounter darkness and malformation and emptiness. As we move from the glorious summary of verse 1, we must first go to verse 2. So look there with me. Here's where the story begins for us. The earth, after God spoke it all into existence, was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what we see is that as the creation act begins, we find a, a dark and empty and formless world. Dark empty and formless. This is not good. Now you may be sitting there thinking, Sean, are you allowed to say that? Can you say that when God created this dark, formless, and empty world that it was not good? Is it possible for God to create something that isn't good? Well, let me explain. Look at chapter 2. Flip on over. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. This is where God expands on his creation of mankind. And in verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
So that's the, the same idea. So when I say that it's not good that the earth is without form and void and that darkness covers the face of the deep, I don't mean that the creation itself is inherently bad. I mean something like what not good means in chapter 2, verse 18. The creation is incomplete. In the same way that Adam needed a helpmate in order for mankind to be called very good, the earth must move beyond being formless and void in order to be called very good. Which leads us to point three, creation. See, look at that. Point two, so fast. We're going to be out of here by noon. Don't hold me to that. Point number three, creation. Now, in order for us to understand what's happening in creation, we really need to understand what's happening here in the darkness. And and in order to understand what's happening, we need to understand these two words. It's actually three in the English, but in in the, in the Hebrew, it's two words, without form, that's one word, and void. Without form and void. Now, right off the bat, you need to know that these two words are not synonyms. They have very distinct meanings. Without form means something like there was no shape or design to the world that God had created. There was no shape or design. Void means something like empty, right? That makes a little bit more sense to us in English. So there was no shape or design, and then it was also empty. Now, let's try to make sense of this. One of the most common metaphors for God and his creation that God uses himself in the Bible is that of the potter and the clay. So just listen to Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay And you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. I I think this metaphor of the potter and the clay is is really useful to help us understand what's happening here in Genesis 1. Creation begins with God, the potter, creating the world out of clay. But he begins not with a fully formed and designed world. He, He throws the lump of clay out there into the universe. But the lump of clay still needs to be worked. It needs to be shaped it needs to be given form. And then after it's given form, the voidness needs to be done away with. The emptiness, it needs to be filled. Or consider the illustration of the painter. Our artist in residence, Tyler Butcher, has helped me understand that painters, it's not uncommon for them to make their own canvases. You know, you cut the wood, you put the pieces of wood together, you glue them and nail them. And, and then after you do that, you stretch the canvas up over the wooden frame and you tack the canvas in place, right? So what you're doing there is you're kind of creating the lump of clay, right? But it, it still needs to be filled, and that's what the painter does when he goes and he paints. He, he gives this canvas life. So in the six days of creation, we see God forming and filling to counteract the without form and void. If you're taking notes, you can make a little chart. Without form, void, forming, filling, an arrow dropping from one to the other. It's so easy. Even you can do it. So here's the pattern. In days one through three of creation, God is creating form. In days four through six, God is filling the form that he has created. So let me walk you through this, okay? Day one, God creates light 
and darkness. In day four, God comes back to light and darkness and he appoints the light to do its very particular job of separating the days and the nights and to give the earth seasons. Day two, God creates the sea and the sky. Then in day five, he comes back and fills the sea with sea creatures in the sky with birds, forming, filling. Day three, God creates the fertile earth, and then day six, God comes back and fills the earth that he has formed with creatures. So I'm going to just try to show you that a little more in depth just by taking one of those pairs of days. We'll we'll do it with day two. Look at verse six with me. Look at verse six. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. We could probably go back a little bit before that. Let's start, sorry, let's start in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was... I'm in chapter 2. Sorry, that's why I'm, I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, guys, we know each other well enough. One of y'all should have said something. I'm up here looking crazy. Nobody's helping me. I'm all alone in the pulpit. The Lord had my back. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So here we see God separating the waters, creating this thing that he calls an expanse, which is just sky. I could show you that by showing you some things in the text, but we won't do that right now, but it's just the sky. And so here's what's happening in day two. God is separating this this mist, these waters. Maybe it's like a dense fog where all the moisture of the world is. I don't know. But then some of the moisture goes up into the heavens and some of the moisture goes down into the earth. Maybe that's the creation of the earth's atmosphere, the earth's atmospheres and the oceans. I don't know. But at the end of this process, we have the seas and the sky. That's what happens at the end of day two. And then in day five, we come back to the sea and the sky. But this time, God is no longer forming. Instead, he's filling. Look at verses 20 and 23 in chapter one. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Are you guys seeing what's happening? Are you catching the pattern? Keep this imagery in mind as you listen to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, who formed the earth, who formed the earth and made it. It was without form, then the Lord came along and he formed it. And he did not create it empty, says the prophet. He formed it to be inhabited, no longer void. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Because I think when you see this, you'll have an overall better understanding of the meaning and purpose of God's six-day pattern in creation. Or to say it another way, if you were an Israelite hearing this story for the first time as you were wandering through the wilderness on your way to the promised land, 
these are the things that would have stuck out most immediately to you. These are the things that you would have picked up on. And yes, of course, we can consider the question of a literal 24-hour day versus the day-age theory. We can even debate about that. But friends, you can come to a text like Genesis 1 so focused on one thing or two things with a debate in your mind and the only thing that you want to see from Genesis 1 is whether or not it answers this question that I have in my mind. You're so focused on one or two trees in Genesis 1 that you miss the entire glorious forest. Now, before moving on from the six days of creation, I want you to think about one more thing. I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you think that in order to create this world and all that is in it and all that is outside of it, all the way to the edge of the known universe and perhaps even beyond that, do you think that God needed any amount of time in order to complete his act of creation? No. Friends, God is outside of time. He does not need time in order to carry out his purposes. So if you believe in six literal 24-hour days of creation, stop and ask yourself, did God need six days in order to create the heavens and the earth? No. If you believe in the day-age theory and you think each day represents an age of creation, Stop and ask yourself this question. Do you think that God needed 6,000 or 6 million or 6 billion years to create the earth? No. He did not need that. God could have done it all in an instant. And it could be that he did do it in an instant and he is here just accommodating himself to us and he's using language to help us understand something that we really just cannot wrap our minds around. But maybe a good question for you to discuss over lunch or during your family devotionals would be, well, then why did God tell us this story in this way if he did not need any time at all? Point number four, creator. Creator. In ancient Mesopotamian mythology, there is a creation account. You know, uh, sorry, George Whitfield was said to be such a good preacher that he could say the word Mesopotamia and bring men to tears. How, did I get close? Mesopotamia. No? Okay. In Mesopotamian mythology, there is a creation account known as the Enuma Elish, and I'm, I am pronouncing that correctly. Now, in this ancient creation myth, there's a male deity, Marduk, and he is said to have had to slay the female deity of chaos, Tiamat. And he had to slay this female goddess of chaos in order to bring about an orderly creation. In Genesis 1, we don't see anything like that. There are no warring deities. Rather, what we see is one God and three persons working together to bring a good creation to pass. And in order to see this one God and three persons in creation, you need to see verse 2 again. That's where we'll begin. There will be more of this one God and three person stuff that comes up later on in chapter one. Let us create man in our image and after our likeness. But before we even get to that, right here in verse two, we read, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep 
And the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word hover that's being used of, of the Holy Spirit here, it's not used very often in the Old Testament. It's only used three times. This, this place in Genesis 1 and two other times. And its most nearest usage is in Deuteronomy 32. And I, I want you to listen carefully to how the word is used. God found Israel in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. Doesn't that sound like without form and void and darkness? God encircled Israel, and he cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters. And that word flutter there, that's what we've translated it to in English. It's the same word in Hebrew for hover in verse 2. So God is pictured as this mother eagle who hovers or flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them up on its pinions. So what does this word hovering mean here when it's used over this unformed earth? Well, one commentator says it like this. The unformed, lifeless mass of the watery earth was under the loving care of the divine spirit who hovered or fluttered over it, ensuring its future good development. In the same way that the mama bird is over the baby birds, raising them up into the goodness that they are supposed to grow into, the Holy Spirit is doing that with all of creation. And then we see Jesus who is present in creation. Now if you're here and you you weren't with us in our sermon series in the book of John, you may be sitting there thinking like, I don't see the name Jesus anywhere in Genesis 1. Where are you getting that from? Well, let's turn to John chapter 1 together. John chapter 1. (coughs) It is not an accident that John begins his gospel in this way. In the beginning... John is hearkening back to creation as he is explaining how Jesus has come to recreate the world. In the beginning was the Word. And we see that, do we not, in Genesis 1? The Word, and God said, and there was. In the beginning, says John, was the Word of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now who is this He? Now we have a personification, a masculinization of the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and all things, excuse me, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And of course, that draws us back to creation again, because there was darkness, but then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And when light entered into the world, life entered in with it. And then John goes on to say, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we know from the rest of our study in John that this word, this light, this life of all creation is in fact Jesus himself. So what we know, friends, from the full testimony of Scripture is that in Genesis 1, God the Father created all things through the Word, God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. Now, friends, here's where this really matters for you. Here's where we get really practical. 
you should know that the same Trinitarian God who created the cosmos made you into a new creation when he saved you. Listen to this creation language that Paul employs in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, friends, we, the old creation, this jar of clay, as Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians, we have been corrupted by sin. But the gospel promised that God would come and remake us. And when he saved us, he did remake us. How did he remake us? The same exact way that he created the world in Genesis 1. God acts to create everything in Genesis 1, and then he comes along and recreates us. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For the same God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to Genesis 1, has shown his light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But there's more than that. It doesn't stop there. The same God who through his word, by his spirit, saved us, is still forming us into the image of his son and filling us with many good things. In the same way that all of creation was without form and void when God first spoke it into existence, when God saved us, we're kind of like the block of clay. We are made new, but we are without form and void. And so the Holy Spirit works in our lives to shape us and to form us and to fill us as a new creation of God. Romans 8.29, I'm just going to give you one verse for each. Romans 8.29 says that we are being formed into the image of his Son. When Jesus saves us, he transforms us. He has a promise to transform us out of the block of clay into something much more glorious. And then there's the filling. Philippians 1.11, which tells us that we are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Galatians 5, we are being filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians says that we are being filled with the love of God. And Paul brings it all together in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 like this. He says, all of us, all of us Christians, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me just summarize this last little point about sanctification in our lives. The Spirit of God is directing our gaze towards the Word of God where we behold the glory of God. And as we behold the glory of God, we are being formed into the image of God and we are being filled more and more with the very life and presence of God. Now God is divinely doing all of this, but friends, you should know that you have a part to play as well. It's not for nothing that Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians to not be filled with wine, but rather to fill ourselves with the Spirit. But that's for another sermon. We don't have time. Let's keep going. Point number five, conclusion. The saddest point of all. Because we have to end, you see, is what I'm saying. Okay. The first creation was good. But it was corruptible. And you can just see that as you read the text. The same creation that God called good and very good and blessed in Genesis 1 
was plunged into darkness and chaos in Genesis 3. There is a, a process of decreation that sin introduced into the world in Genesis 3, a cancer, if you will. In, in Romans 8.22, uh, Paul comes along and he, perfon- he personifies this concept. Just listen to, listen to the language he uses. He says, the whole creation has been groaning. Can creation groan? No, but you, you get what he's doing. Creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Why? Because it wasn't supposed to be like this. Creation was supposed to be good and blessed, but sin has ruined it. And if this were the creation myth of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even of the Darwinists, our story would end right here. Our story would end in a hopeless, perpetual state of chaos and disarray. We would have to spend our lives trying to appease the gods and trying to find some way to, to cause the chaos to not overwhelm us by our own works and efforts. There would be no hope of recreation or rebirth. But the God of the Bible and the story of the Bible and the gospel of God itself and God himself says that that is not the end of the story. The God of the Bible is not the kind of God who abandons his creation just because it has been corrupted. To the contrary, God himself is sovereign over this initial corruption act. And in a way that we can't even begin to understand now, but we will understand one day, God has been sovereignly orchestrating this decreation for the glory of his name and for our good. Again, listen to Romans 8. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. It's not an accident. It's not warring deities. It's not the demiurges rising up from the dust and chaos. God himself subjected creation to this futility. Why? In hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Friends, there is a lot that we could unpack in this verse that we just don't have time for today. So here's what you need to know before you leave today. In order for the word of God to give life back to creation, in the same way that the word of God gave life initially to creation, the word would first have to fall to the ground like a seed and die. And it did. Or perhaps we should say, he did. In Jesus Christ, in his perfect life and death and suffering and burial and resurrection and ascension, we see what God has done to recreate this ruined creation. And this new creation, this is really good news. This new creation will be the final creation. There will be no messing up this second act of creation. Sin will never be able to weasel its way back in. The book of Revelation, the Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, if there's anyone here today who has not seriously considered the gospel and the claims of this story that God is telling us, I just want to ask you, don't don't you feel it deep in your bones? Especially as you hear this, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
Don't you feel it? Like, man, I need that. I need to be made new. Can't you feel it in your bones, in every cell of your body and of your soul when you lay down at night that you have been corrupted, that sin has made you unlike the creation that you were supposed to be? Don't you feel like you're meant to be something better and more glorious than this? If you do, this is why the gospel exists. This is why God came to save us. The promise is that you can be made new. If only you will turn from your sins and trust in the work that God has done on your behalf. Now for our brothers and sisters in the faith, the members of this church and any Christian visitors, on the last day you should know that everything that is not good will be thrown into the fire. But everything else will be gathered into the new heavens and the new earth. And the second act of creation will begin. Well, it's already begun. I guess it will come to its completion. And for those of us who are in Christ, there will be life and light and a state of blessed peace forevermore. Going back to this question of the literal 24-hour day reading of Genesis 1. You know, one of the issues with, with that is that there is light for three days before the text tells us that God creates the sun. But I, I don't know if that really is a problem for a literal 24-hour day reading of the text because in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 5, God tells us that in the end, on the last day, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, and yet there will be light. Revelation 22.5 And the night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, my great hope for you today is that you will not leave here wound up about some controversial point of the six days of creation. Rather, I hope that you leave this gathering this morning with a grand vision of God, the God of Genesis 1, and a deep and abiding hope in Him who created all things by the power of His Word and the glory of His name. If you think this sermon has not been particularly practical, it might just be because you haven't considered just how practical it is. You are in the wilderness. You, believer, are in a land without form and void. Darkness covers the face of this earth. But we can rejoice because we know that Satan is not in control of this world. The God of the universe still hovers over the black abyss of this fallen world and he is fluttering his wings over us. He is hovering over us and he is nurturing the new creation that he purchased with his blood. The kingdom of God is breaking forth into the world at God's command, and one day we, the sons of glory, will enter into the seventh day, the day of perfect rest. Let's pray. Father God, your word is so rich and deep and good, and it is the only thing that can create life in us. So we pray that you will help us to rely on it for all things, for our personal sanctification, for our ability to carry out the mission that you've given us as a church, 
and for everything else, all things pertaining to life and godliness, create in us the life of heaven that your son purchased for us on the cross. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stay and sing.